So hey everyone, welcome back to the One A Zero podcast. Again, this is me, the awesome host Nick. How you doing, my other awesome co-host? I'm doing good, man. <laughs> that's good to hear. That's good to hear. So everyone, um, we're coming here today. As some of you may know, Paul and I belong to a scout group. Uh, in particular, it's the 180 Pacific Coast Scout Group, PCC Rovers. Check us out at pccrovers.com. This is a volunteer group based in Metro Vancouver for youth age 18 to 26. They start back way into the 2006. We have a long history of stories and we thought it would be cool to share with you all today. Um, maybe just a few stories here and there, as well as the origin of how we got started. Today, we have a very, very special guest. One of the people who started our group has been a significant contributor to the scouting community as well. Uh, without further ado, who do we have here, Scarlet Paul? Yeah, thanks, Nick. Today, we have uh, a good friend of mine, Scouter Kevin Lee. Uh, he was our first Rover Crew president. Uh, he actually introduced me to Scouting Vancouver, um, and then we volunteered for the last uh, 10 years since the group started. Uh, we've traveled to Asia a bunch of times together in, in the scouting capacity, uh, been through many uh, different uh, interesting stories and situations. Kev has uh, served on the Scouts Canada Board of Governors. Uh, he's worked with WISM, the uh, World Organization of the Scouting Movement. And uh, professionally, Kevin has, uh, you know, he started as an engineer uh, with Kodak back in the day. Uh, and in the last couple of years, he's been a senior leader in supply chain inventory management with uh, MEC and uh, now with uh, Aritzia. So welcome, Kevin, to the show. Hi, Nick. Hi, Paul. Thanks for having me. Hope I got everything there or pretty close to it. Yeah, you got the big, big beats. Yeah, for sure. So, Kev, maybe we'll just start with your scouting background and, and kind of how that has intertwined with your career a little bit. Maybe you can give us a fuller picture of, you know, how things have been since we started the group. Or right before? Yeah, I, I guess just going um, all the way back to the start. Uh, born and raised in Vancouver. Uh, my my mom, when I was about eight years old, uh, decided that I had a lot of energy and uh, I needed some activities where I could apply that energy. And um, she had always had a, a good impression of, of Scouts as a, a place for, for youth. So I was enrolled in... Uh, my church scout group um, when I was eight. And, um, you know, obviously you, you learn different things at different points in your life, but I was able to participate uh, in the program from that age uh, into my teen years. Uh, had a brief break, I would say, during university where I was doing a lot less, just kind of trying to keep connected. Um, and then finally, uh, after coming out of uh, university, really kicking it into high gear with uh, starting the, the Rover crew um, and, and, and uh, pouring lots of energy into that um, amongst other things. So can you, can you bring me back to, or bring us back to like when you thought about starting the group, you know, how, you know, I think you're serving on like the, the regional council <clears throat> and then this idea came up to get a bunch of 20 year olds together. Yeah, I, I would say like uh, throughout my time with Scouts as a, a youth and, and a young adult, like I'd always been pretty proactive and and gung ho. And if there was uh, a, an ask for someone to take charge or lead something, be it from setting up a campsite to uh, starting up a new program um, for the city, I would be one of the first people to put up my hand and. Um, I think it's through that that I had a chance to experience uh, what it was like to lead uh, within Scouts and within the community. And also, I would say on the flip side, um, you know, how very few people there were that were ready to put up their hand and uh -huh. and say that, um, you know, hey, I'm I'm available to, to help, even if it wasn't to lead, but just to, to join such and such initiative or, or program. Um, and I think that culminated in in my, uh, I guess it would have been my early 20s um, when I was volunteering at the, the council level, which is kind of like the, uh, the greater Vancouver uh, area. And uh, we, I was with a bunch of um, volunteers that were trying to take a look at issues that span across our, our region. And um, 
one of the big things that we saw that was a challenge was what we described as the the two hump camel. I don't know if Paul, you'll remember that, yep. that uh, phrase from back in the day, but the two hump camels, you know, as, as if one can imagine, uh, there are some camels with two humps. Uh, it represented a graph that we, uh, we famously would put up in presentations uh, over and over again uh, to kind of spread the word. But what we were looking at was actually a chart of the number of, of people participating or volunteering in the scout program in our region versus age. And uh, when you looked at that distribution, you know, one could obviously assume and predict that, you know, as, as, as part of the youth distribution, yeah, there would be a curve from age five to age 26, which is, um, which is the, the kind of the defined age which scout program runs. Um, and then, but we would see a second uh, distribution, which would be the average age of volunteers. And I think what was important about that distribution was not that it existed because there's always a distribution, but what we saw in between the lines. And um, what we interpreted is that there was a massive vacuum of people, let's say between the age of 20 to 40, both uh, participating as, as a young adult and as well as a, and a full adult volunteer. It seemed like people would enjoy the program as a youth disappear and then possibly come back about 30 years later. And we felt that that was a problem, a big problem to the sustainability of a volunteer led program. I liken it a lot to salmon spawning. So we, we all know, you know, that salmon, they'll, they'll swim up the river, they'll lay eggs and then those eggs will become small uh, fry and, and when they reach the appropriate maturity, uh, maturity, they'll swim back into the ocean and disappear for several years and then come back. Um, and there's a lot of anxiety and grief about how much of those salmon come back again to, to continue that cycle. And I always, I always likened it to that, that this is a very strange process in which people go through this program, have very positive experiences as a young adult and then they disappear for 30 years and maybe they come back or maybe they don't, but so much has time has passed that, you know, even if there was a chance to intervene and invite them in earlier, um, you know, it, you, you really haven't, haven't made use of that opportunity to, to get them back earlier and contribute maybe in um, more of the, the prime years of their life and, and, and provide to the program. So that was, that was the challenge that we saw. And I think that um, there was yeah. there was a lot of like it was a very fixed right like it it seemed like anyone who had who anyone who's in their fifties was volunteering they had been in scouting before right but you wouldn't hear a lot of like dedicated unless unless we're parents which we've seen like forty two year olds with a young child who just wants to volunteer come in like there wasn't like new salmon populating from outside of that original growth so we didn't see a lot of like younger people or in their thirties join for example right who didn't have experience. So you're kind of left with this attrition once people got to, like I said, people joining back in their fifties, not everyone came back. So then, then you're going to have this natural attrition and they're going to re repopulate uh, or even exceed uh, the original seedlings that we had. So it was, it was a problem because it was, it was not going to grow itself. Right. At the end yeah. The and you know, we looked at, I guess what you would, what you're describing is what one might call organic leads. And yeah. we had, we had very, very few organic leads. And I think that just described the organization and the nature of it at, at that time is, yeah, like, so what was very typical, the funnel of a new volunteer was that I did the program when I was uh, a child. Mm -hmm. I had positive experiences from that, or I knew someone that had positive experiences from that. And I'm motivated to go back in to provide and facilitate that experience for others. But it was almost like a complete, a desert of people who just read about the organization and decided that they would want to join without having a prior experience. And yeah. we wanted to change the odds on that. We wanted to flip the model upside down and make it so that the, the only way that people could join was not because they did the program 30 years mm -hmm. ago. Mm -hmm. Right. Because unless you had, and I remember because when I was recruited, Kevin, if you remember, maybe this is a good segue to a short story time. When we started, I think you brought in like 30 people in scouting, right? Like I think it was like 30, like 20 year olds, right? 
that first meeting we had. And I was like the only person who did not have a long formal scouting background, like one out of 30. So how we're going to build that group if, if only one person was from outside of um, the existing uh, scouting pool. Yeah, absolutely. Like, um, yeah, even from the beginning, we, we knew that if we were going to start something new, we had to have people who had some positive experience or, or connection to the program or, you know, otherwise, you know, how, how would they buy in or even imagine or even resonate with what the goal of what we were trying to do was um, with the program? which I guess I haven't gotten into yet <laughs> in terms of like how we ended up with the crew specifically or what the goal of the, the, the program was. First of all, great analogy. <laughs> I've never thought of Soundwind that way. But yeah, um, I didn't know that was the case back in my country uh, in terms of scouting people just, there are people from 1826 in the community, but it's just that there's no such thing as rovers you become a scout then probably ventures really few uh and then when you pass 18 you just scout scouters right there's no soft skill development things from 1826 so i think that's bear a similarity to um you know the, the situation of what you're describing back in you know the time when you established the crew there yeah, I I think I I think I, I maybe glossed over that, but yeah, like it may, even in my personal experience, I think after the age of, uh, let's say, let's call it fifteen, sixteen, I I started losing interest and engagement in the program, and there were other things competing for my time, uh, rightfully so, like school and, um, you know, just getting on with my life, and it it seemed like um, what I was doing in the program at the time had had less and less direct connection to that. And I think that's all, that, that was also one of the early motivations and in, in influences in how we designed what ultimately would become the Rover Crew. We, we wanted to address some of those, um, I don't want to call them deficits, but opportunities and where, where we didn't feel like there was a lot of program per se uh, in, in Scouts locally that, that, that really supported you through that phase in your life. I think it was very uh, typical that people, as they were transitioning into post-secondary uh, college university, um, that they would just drop out of the program, and uh, we we saw that as the big opportunity. That hey, like this, you don't need to drop out. In fact, uh, participating in the program uh, can be mutually beneficial to you moving on with your life, your education, and finding a career. And I think that was like one of the the early. Uh, building blocks of how we dis designed the the program, which ultimately became the 180th. So I guess was that the the main motivation for for you? Like, what was your personal motivation to kind of get this thing? I mean, because I remember we do, we spent a lot of time getting this thing off the ground. Like, what what kind of drove you? Those first, especially those first two years. I remember it was pretty hard. Like there were multiple drivers and, you know, one, there was a personal story. Like I think a very personal one where I had a great time growing up in scouts. I, I had a very uh, good scout group. Uh, uh, that one that I talked about based out of the church. And I had um, people who I considered to be my friends in the program. And we uh, in scouts, we would, compete at camps and we would win competitions and uh, we had some of the best memories of our childhood years uh, participating in that program and what I saw that was very sad was that one by one uh, including myself we drifted away from the program as we approached our our teenage years or mid, our, as our late teenage years and what was such an amazing thing just ended off with a fizzle. Um, we lost touch with each other. I mean, this was before, I think, uh, email and and social media was really it was really taken hold yet. So like we've we've lost touch with each other for the most part, and I, I I don't think anyone of those folks actually returned to the program to to contribute again. I think so. As a personal, I think a, a personal driver was like that's too bad. You know, we had such an awesome and amazing experience, and some might argue that you know that that's just the way it is. That was limited to those years. But 
I honestly believe that there was there's more that we could do that could extend that experience and also for us to give back. So I think that was a person on a personal note. You know, on the outside in uh, looking in working with the council, uh, looking at this, what we described as the, the two hump camel or the, the spawning salmon problem. Uh, we really felt that there was an opportunity. And by we, I mean the, the leadership of, 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 of volunteers at the time um, to address what we saw as a major deficit in the availability of people to help lead the program um, at, the, at the regional level. Um, and what we saw was that if we didn't intervene in the next five to 10 years, there would actually be basically no one left willing and able to run uh, and lead the program at, at the council level of organization. And we saw that as a huge risk. Everyone being a volunteer, especially, it's not like you could just hire people because you knew people were leaving. It was that there was no one uh, that when you looked around, there was no one putting up their hand to take over for these now retiring Gen X, uh, sorry, baby boomer volunteers that were now, you know, they've given their lives to the organization. Thank you. They're done. They're, they're ready to enjoy their retirement mm. <laughs> and there's no one left. There's no one they're, They look behind them and there's no one on the bench to take oh. over. So I think it was, that was it. There was the two things. It was that I, I felt I had such great experiences with the program on a personal note. And I had that personal story that I wanted to alter for future generations. And I want to preserve this organization and, uh, and, and really see it through into the next decade uh, with having a leadership base that could guide it. Um, and it's with those two dual kind of dual interests that we found a sweet spot in creating a leadership and management program for 18 to 26 year olds, as you know, mm -hmm. which ultimately became the 180th. Mm. Wow. No, like, like, to be honest, I can't, I can't put myself in that position where, uh, like, looking back, there's no one there to, you know, to contribute to a movement or in, in this industry that I really care about. Um, however, I do, however, I can imagine, you know, that being, you know, that if you care some, about something so much, you would always have want to preserve it and, you know, make it strive you know and thrive through time right so um thank you for sharing that kevin yeah my pleasure and yeah. i think um it's it's a live experiment i think we're still seeing the 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 results of that experiment as we speak mm. so maybe now that you explain your perspective right um, can you share us a little bit about any of your memorable moments you had as a rover in the crew you got that, that same point of why you want to express it. Like your why is really big. Your fire, you know, the inside of you, you know, burns passionately and everything, right? So what about your experience in terms of being a rover in the crew that you established? Yeah, I mean, there, there are so many. I, I think having started the program in 2006 and being active as a rover and then as an advisor uh, up until probably 2016, uh, 10 years of memories, where do you start? Um, I think some highlights for me of the program were definitely the, uh, the conference uh, that we hosted, uh, the, the, the Centennial Scouters Conference. That was a big one. I think that really, I think in many ways, um, so was a exercise in leadership, which really solidified the group's identity as a group to themselves. And I think that was a really important one uh, in my books. And then if I were to name a few others, um, certainly indelible memories of our early international projects when international projects were still really a, a idea versus something that we'd done before and all the inherent challenges associated with trying to do something that had not been done uh, before. I think that was also very, very, very memorable for me. Um, but you know, there are just, I wouldn't be exaggerating if I would say there were hundreds of memories and, you know, the time that we spent on the program, be it the one-on-one -on -one coaching sessions, the, uh, the, the 
the regional camps that we would uh, plan and, and, and run for youth across the council. Hundreds of youth participated in those camps that we ran. Mm. Um, the, the fundraising projects, um, the, the, the seminars and workshops that we ran. Oh my gosh, like there are just so many things. Um, where does where <laughs> yeah. one start? I but, uh, but that, yeah. yeah, but uh, but yeah, certainly there's there was no uh, lack of of, of positive, uh, you know, and, and also challenging experiences that that I take away from the program um, for sure. You know, it was a long time ago, I guess, um, when you think about me, fifth, almost fifth, no, 14 years, 13 years. But also the environment. I mean, the world has changed quite a bit since then. Right. Um, there wasn't Instagram. I don't think there was even really Facebook back then when it started. So it was hard to kind of maybe connect or, or, or show people what we were doing, right? Oh, in the public a little bit. And, you know, we were still facing a, a challenge trying to prove our concept. I mean, today, I guess, if you had this concept about young people being leaders and, you know, there's many groups like that and many groups trying to do good things and everyone knows about it. But back then, you know, there wasn't a lot of awareness around that, right? And mm-hmm. we were actually... You know, when Kevin talks about the two hump camel, it wasn't just because people weren't interested when they were 19 and then they started changing their mindset when they were 40. It was also because of the people and the culture that we were part of, right? And it's not to say anyone's trying to like, people had bad intentions or ill will, but people were just used to the fact that there were people with 30 years experience and then there was people with one year experience or, 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 or just experience as a youth. So that gap kind of became the culture and when, when Kevin and I and a lot of others try to try to break that cycle by stepping up in a lot of leadership roles, I think there's a lot of people who, who kind of doubted our abilities as 20-year-olds to run conferences um, that normally someone in their mid-50s would be in charge of, right? I don't care if that's an accurate. I mean, it does, it does make sense, right? Like it, when, when, it, when the cycle continues for so long, right? It's, it's really doubtful that, you know, somebody's going to break it because no one has ever done it in, I don't know. I don't know if it have ever happened before. If it, people, people get used to it, right? People get used to what is the normal, I guess, back then. Yeah. I, I think there were people around us that, that in later conversations revealed that they thought our program was another annual initiative that would mm-hmm. start with great fanfare and energy and would fizzle out by the end of the year. Um, And those same people revealed to me that they were, you know, it, until they saw it, they didn't believe it basically that it was both what we were trying to do uh, as well as whether or not it was even possible. Yeah. I I think going, I mean, we can, we have a few more questions about kind of that experience, but I think just reflecting back on, your, your work, like my work anyways, right? Like, I think we see this in the workplace as well, right? Lots of new initiatives go up and people have been there for a while. It's hard for them to jump on board because they've jumped on board maybe a few times already and haven't seen things go through. And I really took that parallel, you know, later in my career. I don't know if you've done the same and seen that, Kev. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Absolutely, I, I have. Um, I think there's there's an analogy. I, I, as you know, I'm, I'm big on analogies. Um, I think it's it's called Maslow's hammer. You know, if if all you have is a, a hammer, okay. every problem is a nail. And what does that saying mean? I mean, there's there's obviously multiple interpretations of that, but in in this particular context and conversation, I would say that for anyone that just grew up doing the program, you know, it was you you participated on average from two to five years, and then you left the program, and maybe you came back as an adult. Um, Anyone pr- proposing anything different than that, uh, the the mind tends to reject or try to fo- form that idea back into the context that they understood, which generally resulted in confusion. Like, what are you trying to do? Like, how is this even possible? And why are you even trying to do this? Is I think we we ran up into a lot of that, and it probably taught me a lot of my early lessons about the the inherent challenge and challenges of change management uh-huh. um, and, and how to do it well and how, how not to do it well. Cause I think we did a lot of how not to do it well as well. Yeah, I agree. I agree. <laughs> I, agree. Um, mm. I, I think it was a great, it was a great sandbox for us. Right. I mean, you know, there was a lot of relationships and there was a lot of 
you know, people involved. And I think when we put ourselves in this kind of pressure cooker, right? Like I think Kevin and I, we, we, we proclaim to be these change agents and, and it doesn't go over smoothly all the time is what I'm trying to say. Uh, and we learn from it. And, and um, you know, I think some of those people you talk to right today, you know, you know, we're, we're, we're either uh, good friends with, or, you know, we have a very good working relationship in other programs and projects that, uh, that involve the scouting community or even outside the scouting community. Yeah, absolutely. I think, um, I think, I, I think we like, especially with time, like I, if we had friction, you know, over a, a one particular event that we were running or, or project that we were doing and somehow we had uh, rubbed each other the wrong way. I think given time, like in perspective, everyone looks back mostly fondly at those things and thinking like, Oh my gosh, I can't believe we, we lost any sleep or got angry over such things. Uh, yeah. uh, I think certainly like time has given us all a lot of perspective and some of those folks that I look back at that maybe I, I even had friction with, I, I, I wonder why I even bothered uh, losing any sleep over that stuff, considering mm. um, the the big picture and, and everything. Now that I've you know I, yeah. I can see that we've done and, and that we can do. Yeah, I think it's 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 undeniable that the passion that people have for scouting and the program and what it represents, and I mm. think that's something we all had in common. Um, but I think how you get there, and then you know there there's so many type, types of people and and problems, and um, I mean especially Vancouver. I remember you know, a lot of the problems people had in say, like the West side of Vancouver was like affordability and housing prices and changing demographics, right? So the leaders there had a much different problem than say those who were in Fraser Valley and, um, mm. you know, and it had, so, That's so true. like they had different focuses, even though we try to come in with this kind of like, you know, here's our assessment what the issue is. A lot of people who are working with kids and working with youth, you know, they had a, a, a totally different perspective that uh, we, we, we spent a lot of time trying to um, convince people or, you know, you know, they, they wanted a, a leader. They wanted someone just to, to help out, you know, two hours a week, right? That was their main concern. And, and um, now, you know, looking back, you know, Scout, uh, Kevin, also a lead volunteer in a group um, for a long time in downtown Vancouver, we probably understood a lot, a lot more of that, you know, as we took those roles in managing groups with, uh, with a lot of younger adults or younger kids, actually, sorry. Yeah, I would. I would say like, oh, go ahead, Nick. Oh, no worries. Look, um, I'm just, I'm just, um, I'm trying to comment on you know, um, try trying to ask. Uh, I'm sorry, trying to comment on Kevin's things about you know losing sleep over some fiction in the past and everything. I just want to say you know that you probably didn't know what you know now, so there's no point in uh, you know um, thinking about that. For Paul, uh, I think. That's why having a lot of different perspective uh, in terms of a team or group uh, really helps because then that helps you to bring everything back to a common solution that kind of benefits everyone and everything. Yeah, so, so go ahead, Kevin. This is one one comment now. <laughs> Yo, no, thank, thanks. Thanks, Nick. I think, uh, yeah, like, I, I I certainly think that now I have a different perspective. A, a life's short, so why spend more time on 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 dwelling on the past and then sure, and then B like there's there's so many uh, things that demand our attention and time already. Like why why waste time on on the things that are taking away from you versus adding to you and adding to the world, right? Mm. But uh, let's you know let's let's change gears a little bit. Um, I want to talk about that Fuji trip just a little bit like so one of the trips we went on and and I think the idea was that young people they want to travel they want to explore different cultures and and uh, Kev had gone on a trip to Japan uh, previously for school and then he decided to take kind of 10-15 random people strangers to um, to go there so so maybe Kev can you can you walk walk the group through um, why we decided to go international and maybe you know that, that Japan trip in a bit more detail or kind of your memorable moments. Cause I know I've mentioned a few on this podcast. Yeah. I think, I think I was trying to, when we came up with some of those initial ideas, we were trying to marry a few different things. I think one is that we are of the generation and, and generations following mine where people have an incredible interest and 
in travel and understanding different cultures and different places. Whereas maybe just a few generations ago, that was cost prohibitive to do those things. Mm. Um, you know, pre-pandemic, you could fly across the Pacific on some flights for $500 return. And that's something that our previous generations could never do. So I think the interest in travel certainly is just, is, is something that exists that previously could not. Um, and so anyways, uh, going back to your, your, your main question uh, in terms of why we did those projects, I thought that if we only played within our small sandbox, which would, could be defined as the greater Vancouver area or even Canada, um, that we would miss out on one of the key points of scouting. Mm. And which is, it was, it's a world movement or uh, also world brotherhood or sisterhood. Um, and without that component, I think we miss out on half the point of what Scouts is about. If you go back to some of the source materials and even just how it's thought about in other parts of the world, um, connecting with other Scouts or just people, period, in different countries of different cultures is one of, the, one of the big tenets of being a scout and being a good citizen of your country and of the world is understanding different cultures, different peoples, different ways of working and being connected to that world. So it just became so logical uh, and obvious that we, if we were to be what we believed to be a world-class leadership program in scouts, we had to have an international component. Um, and I knew that if people in our program connected with those abroad, their view and their sense of purpose would expand, you know, tenfold, hundredfold in terms of what they were doing and what they were connected to. They weren't just connected to a small little group that was running out of uh, some office space on West Broadway. Um, they were connected to something that was happening across the whole planet in churches and schools and uh, playgrounds and in jungles uh, even. And that greater sense of purpose I thought was, was, was something that I could not have the program not have essentially. It had to have that as an essential component. Mm. Yeah. Why Japan? I think, like you said, I uh, I traveled there previously. I thought it was it was at the time a, a place of trending interest uh, for people our age. Uh, we had some connections to people involved in both scouts and guides in Japan, um, and I think it, when it checked off a bunch of those boxes, it just made it to be the uh, logistical and, and safety wise an easy choice for us to to go there as our first project. And Kev, when I told you that uh, I'd never gone hiking before and Mount Fuji was the first hike I'd ever done, what was your reaction to that? <laughs> uh, I, I just thought it was going to be a very interesting trek up that mountain for, for all of us. Uh, I mean, what a, what a leadership exercise, hey? Physical and mental uh, yeah, exercise as well. It, it was a test for everyone in different ways. It was a test of the group. It was a test of the individual. There's so many different ways you could interpretations of what happened on that mountain that that day and night yeah. that uh, you could take away yeah could you give us a little bit about your insight of that that hike mm. what were you feeling you know you know we had all just kind of like some people i, I was saying mm. in the previous podcast some of these people like lillian shout out to lillian if she's listening probably not um, <laughs> like i met her at the airport i was like hello you know i've never seen you in, in our group in our scout group uh, before but uh, nice to meet you um, so what was your mentality? Because I think you were kind of leading us up the mountain, right? It was something that you had planned out a little bit. Mm. Well, there's a whole bunch of people who are like, you know, this is my first time here or nice to meet you, right? So what was your perspective of that hike? Yeah, there was, there was incredible uh, pressure of sorts, right? Being when you're in a position where you are a activity leader, uh, you are you're in charge in multiple ways. One is just from the legality and the safety of the group. And, and two is like, you, you, you feel this pressure that obviously you have to reach your destination and it, you have to get everyone there. So given the mixture of 
fitness levels and experience levels and just even like recent uh, level of training and activity uh, for what was, I believe, an eight to 10 hour hike uh, oh. with um, continuous elevation gain. It was, it was certainly a challenge. It was physically challenging, psychologically demanding. And then there was the team dynamic element where you had people that were obviously very, very fit. And they, it's just like any sport, be it swimming or running or riding a bike, everyone just wants to go at their own natural pace, right? And mm -hmm. for anyone to compromise on that, it, 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 it is a burden. The fast people don't want to go slower and slow people are probably going as fast as they can already. And how do you manage that? How do you, how do you, how do you mitigate that? Because you know that for such a duration of hike, you're absolutely not going to split up the group. You need to get everyone there all at the same time. Oh, yeah. Um, and, and there was a shared, like, I guess there was a shared understanding that we, we wanted to see the sunrise. So we had to leave late at night. But at the same time, we traveled all day and there's, you know, energy and sleep deprivation that we had yeah. to deal with that maybe you normally wouldn't if you went on like a 9 a.m. hike, right? Yeah. And I mean, that time is the most challenging time because it's supposed to be the coldest, if I'm correct. It, it, it was, yeah. I mean, like talk about putting the odds against you. Like uh, we, we chose one of the steepest route ascents. We, I think being um, poor students and, and, or just newly graduates, most people didn't buy enough food at the rest stop prior mm. to the hike to last us for eight to 10 hours Man. Um, and being sleep deprived because as, as uh, Paul described, like you get off the bus, it's like six or seven o'clock. Usually, you know, within a few hours, you'd be planning to go to bed. Instead, we're about to start eight to 10 hours of medium to rigorous exercise. You know, it, you couldn't have planned a more challenging set of odds for a group of ragtag individuals with a dream to get to the top to watch the sunrise. Oh my and, and no, no, I don't think that we had any like training or we didn't do any like pre-hiking bag. Like, I don't think I even brought, like I brought like a cotton t-shirt or something. And maybe that was just me, you know, my, my attitude back then was just, and that was a learning maybe for me, like, you know, I'll just show up and I'll see what happens. Right. Yeah. And definitely uh, any future hike after that, I did not do that. So yeah. trial fire. remember the mottos, Paul, be prepared. Be prepared. Yeah. Always um, be prepared. The hard way, but it was great. I was actually watching something yesterday about, okay, Mount Fuji is not Everest. All right. We, we, we saw grandmas and their grandchildren at the very top um, eating hot uh, soup. So it, it's not Everest, but I was watching something on, on Everest last night and it was just saying people get like delusional this fever like they have to make it to the top even though logically it says to stop or walk down and i think we had a couple of those moments kev if you remember like some of the group actually had to stay behind and didn't get to the top right yes yeah i think there's a lot of courage uh, in doing that as well yeah. yeah i think um everyone obviously no one wants to disappoint the group and everyone wants to be a team player uh but but ultimately the, the physical challenge of ascending and being active for over eight to 10 hours was, was a bit too much for some people mm. to, to handle. So I think there, there were at least um, three people who decided to just uh, stop at one of the rest stations. One of the cool things about the hike is that the, um, I think it's divided into equal, almost equal parts about, 10 to 12 rest stations and you always had the opportunity to uh, warm up or take a nap or have a hot meal uh, for a fee. <laughs> so again, yeah. being cheap, I think being cheap, uh, uh, poor, poor students and new, new grads, most of us just rejected that as even an option. Oh there was God. never an option to give up. You had to make <laughs> it up all the way, no matter what, uh, for better, for worse, no matter how dumb that was. Uh, uh, that was certainly some of our mindset. Um, and certainly for me too, like I, I had a, a great pressure that I had to make sure that everyone got up to the top. Yeah. Um, yeah. I didn't even think about like how, you know, I don't, I didn't really think about how your position, like you felt about it too, right? Cause you were leading us there and you know, what, what you were thinking. I don't think I ever asked you that in the last 
15 years about it either. <laughs> yeah, no, like it was, uh, I had a different type of stress. Like I, mm -hmm. I had to worry about setting the pace and I was very, because I was the pace leader, I would be constantly managing the expectations of those that were really fast and were just behind me, encouraging me to go faster. But knowing at the back of this train of 20 people that we have some people that were even struggling to maintain the pace that we we had. Mm -hmm. And I was tired. Like I, I was not, Definitely. I was not, not tired. Um, and I, I, all I could do was tell myself one step at a time. I, I, I almost entered like a state of, of meditation where I would synchronize my breaths to my steps. And uh, I, I'm trying to remember now what that was, but it was something like exhale on this step, breathe in on this step. Oh and God. I would be counting, I would be count down each step. And I was doing that to slow down or, or synchronize my climbing speed so that I wouldn't, I wouldn't change. I had to be super consistent. I didn't want to speed up or slow down mm. um, at odd paces because I know that would be very draining for people in the back. Uh, so I had just had to be a, a rock, a train, yeah. and just go up at a steady pace with without any wavering. And that was that was my personal yeah. challenge uh, going up the mountain. Yeah, I think I think Kev, you know you did a great job. I remember every station we did, we did a little video and we joked around. You remind me me to uh, to buy those uh, rice balls um, to keep the energy up. Uh, you know, if if you're watching on YouTube or listening on YouTube, we can put up a few pictures um, of the hike, maybe on the yeah. screen. Um, yeah, and, and yeah, you know, you know, you did a great job, by the way. I don't think I've got a chance to. You did a great job leading us up that hike and and allowing us to be free a little bit, right? Like, I don't think I had to worry about anyone else but myself. And like you said, just trying to keep up with the group and not letting the group down. Um, and it was a great lesson for, for myself that you don't want to be that person that lets the group down, I guess. It forces you to be more prepared to be, if you want to be a leader, to be the best example and, and, and take care of others who, who might slip. Mm, definitely. Can I just comment on this whole story? You know, like, like there's so much going on right here. I uh, you know that I just want to voice in before, you know, we jump on to the next topic or whatever. So first of all, Kevin, like, thank you so much for sharing all of that. Um, first of all, in terms of the hike itself, like I myself have definitely not ever taken taken on any challenges like that. Like, like I mentioned in the kind of like the first episode, like my longest and most challenging hike was the Elfin Lake hike, right? Which we did in the morning, right? Um, there was still sun. Uh, I guess it's not as steep as Mount Fuji. Uh, but it was really challenging, right? Uh, and I definitely can relate to an extent the the responsibility of not wanting to give up, right? Not wanting to be a, a burden for the whole group and also not wanting to leave anyone behind, right? The, the feeling of, you know, like I chose, you know, to be in this hike, right? And, you know, I I want... And, you know, at that time I want and I still want to reach to the top and finish what I have started. Um, so that's why I'm not, you know, going to be a burden that I'm not going to stop, even though it's few tiring, right? Um, and, you know, my face was purple when I reached the destination and everything. But having that say, right, hearing you describe the hike, right? I mean, I, I, I could imagine the hike was difficult from what Paul, you know, told me, right? But now that you describe it, it feels so much more challenging. Like I feel like I feel like Mapuche is now steeper in my imagination compared to Paul's version. And then you know, and then everyone seems so much more tiring and persistent, you know, at the same time, which kind of make me regret not being born sooner and being able to came to Canada at that time. But um, yeah. So something that we don't, we, we don't mention, I mentioned this story, only the, the parts where it kind of, you know, has that inflection or reflection point for myself personally, but something about the story itself that, that, um, that you should know, Nick, is that 
we were chasing a deadline on both ends. So we had to get to the top before sunrise, which I think it was like 4 a.m. Kevin, was it five, four or 5 a.m. Yep. Right. So we had to kind of try to get up there and rest at the top because our bus left at nine o'clock. So somebody, Kevin, like I mentioned names, <laughs> scheduled the bus at bus stop at nine o'clock. So not only we do to get up there and see the sunrise at four or 5 a.m., we had to get down the mountain by nine, nine a.m. So we couldn't just sit there and relax and then like take a nap. We had to like run oh my God. down the mountain in half the time it took us to get up the mountain. I don't know if you remember that, Kev. Yeah, I, I think it was not only the bus that we had to make, but we had to make that bus because we had to make a train and then to make another bus to get to oh our final God. destination for yeah. the, the next night. Uh, so, you know, I, I would say there was now there that there was not enough buffer buffering uh for for that but uh it just added to the excitement the challenge i think there were so many mount fujis right there was the physical Mm -hmm. challenge but there was the mental there was each Mm -hmm. person's personal story Mm -hmm. um and you know nick i you're gonna have your if you haven't already you'll have your own mount fujis oh my god and you should find your own mount fujis if you have or create them because i think that's where all the 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 memorable indelible learning points come from are, are those sorts of mount fuji stories yeah, and I think it's hard to replicate these days. I mean, I think we want that to happen, but it was quite organic, right? Like you don't plan not to plan, but that's kind of what we did a little bit. I mean, we had a plan, but it it was the the timing and the you know, and being overseas, I think also made a big challenge too, right? Like you're in a foreign country, like we couldn't speak to the bus driver in fluently mm-hmm. to wait for the other people. So it did add an extra element that I think it's hard to replicate uh, today. Yeah. But it's not impossible. And I think that's what we'll, we'll try to do, you know, um, harder with COVID. But I think, I think as the restrictions level off, maybe we'll do something uh, with the group. Yeah. Yeah. And I would only add that you know, it, in terms of it, finding those experiences, if, if it's anything, if it offers any help, I would say, if you're doing something that you feel 100% comfortable with, you're, you're probably not going to find your own Mount Fuji story with that. Mm-hmm. But if you're doing something where you feel, uh, like I, I call it 20% uneasy about that there are some things that you don't know how to do, um, it, it's probably you're going to get close, a lot closer to finding your own Mount Fuji moments uh, in that sort of experience where you're really pushed into uncharted territory. Yeah, I think on paper it made a lot of sense, right, Kev? On paper it made a lot of sense, the, the scheduling and the... Yeah, always on paper. Uh, Not real life. <laughs> Absolutely, yeah. I think we even buffered in there. Like, now that I think about it, we we gave ourselves, like, an extra three hours at the bottom even. Um, uh, and we, we made we, we made allocated time to being at the top, just taking pictures. But with just all the delays uh, uh, throughout the entire ascent and descent, uh, I think all in all, we end up being maybe uh, 60 minutes late, but the bus driver was so nice to, since there were only like two buses that day, one in the morning, one in the afternoon, uh, she waited for everyone to arrive before she left. Um, mm-hmm. I don't even know what we would have done if, if, if she hadn't done that. I think we were debating how we would have to split the group and send a, 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 an early party to, to go there and yeah. have someone stay back to guide the second half of the group to to the hotel for the second night. Hearing all of this, right, it makes me wonder, like, if what if you had started the crew now, not back then, but now, would you still have those memorable lessons? Do you think anything would be different? Anything would stay the same? You know, just want to hear your opinions in terms of that. You know, I, I think what we were doing is as important, if not more important today. Mm. And... I think with the prevalence of an awareness of the issues around mental health, mental, you know, wellness, um, the importance of speaking out um, and leading, be it in your own community, in terms of social activism, um, mm. or even bigger than that, I think the things that we we are doing and we're doing are just more more important than they ever have been mm. uh, today, and the need for good citizens 
leaders in your community, uh, I can't think of a time where we need more of that than today. Mm. Uh, absolutely. And would I do anything? Would I do anything differently than than back then? Um, I think all, all I could say is I would I would start earlier and I would get more people mm. so that we could <laughs> have more uh, uh, influence and have more people share in this experience to affect a greater. Uh, number of people with what we're doing, and more people climbing from Mount Fuji as well. <laughs> yeah, or or just even the grouse grind, you yeah. know, whatever. <laughs> yeah, maybe we'll find a different mountain for you, Nick. We'll find a Kilimanjaro or something. Yeah. Um, yeah whatever your whatever your metaphorical mountain is, it could be a real <laughs> mountain. It it could be a it could a be hill. Something else entirely. <laughs> So, you know, you've been a volunteer, you know, been a participant in our group, a volunteer with our group and with the scouting community, you know, I, I mentioned off the top that uh, you'd work for the world organization, Scouts Canada, um, and also a volunteer uh, group administrator at the local mm. group. Can you share with us maybe kind of what are the, the, the learnings that you take away the most from your volunteer experience and how you've applied that to mm. say professionally and personally? Yeah, that's a, that's a good Great question, Paul. I think I'm just reflecting on that as, as you asked the question. I think if I were to just to boil down some of the key takeaways that that I continue to draw uh, as well as drawn from, from scouts, one of them would just be first and foremost is grit and determination. Like I think what really can set you apart from other people just in the workplace and in the community is your ability to grind away at a problem uh, until you see the results that mm. you are looking for and not giving up too quickly. It, it, I, I've seen time and time again, you know, someone has a great initiative or idea, both personal or, or external, and they'll try it for be it a few weeks or a few months and they don't see the result that they're looking for. And they decide that, you know what, this, this must not have been a very good idea. But having the kind of the experience and the hindsight from our, some of our projects, um, our vision, sometimes, like if I look at the crew, 180, it, it took maybe three to five years to really manifest itself into what I would call like phase, phase one of like <laughs> wow. really being what we had envisioned when we sat around a table brainstorming ideas Uh, five years before well, that then we finally saw okay this is everything that we had really planned for uh, to, in phase one to happen it took that long to achieve mm. that level of idea so I would say you know the bigger your idea you know the more grit and determination you're going to have to have to uh, stick with it even mm. even you know through those intermediate challenges and failures and roadblocks uh, before you even get to any kind of sign of success. Um, so that would be the, one of the biggest takeaways. I think the second is just working with a diversity of people uh, with different learning styles, communication styles, uh, cultures, preferences, um, tolerances, I would even say, and mm -hmm. being, being flexible and adaptable enough to work with those individuals And, and, and the collection of different individuals and help them to work together. I think if that's one thing that I've taken away is that ability to make and help teams to work effectively together. And I, I, I make no mistake about that. I got most of my experiences uh, of how to do that mm. uh, from scouts. Oh, that's, that's pretty awesome. I mean, hearing you say that, like, like personal experiences just blew through my mind, right? So like for working with a diverse group, so, you know, I've worked with even just on Zoom right now because of the pandemic and everything, but, um, you know, a lot of people have different work time schedules, methods of approaching different styles, um, designs and all those kind of stuff. So definitely can uh, relate to that. But what... I'm more amazed about is the the part where you talk about grit and determination and the way that you um, give an example of, you know, your phase one took like three to five years. 
right? Uh, because nowadays, a lot of the projects I'm doing, right? What, what you call phase one, or if there's a phase one at all, usually, usually measure in weeks, you know, the most like three weeks, four weeks, eight weeks, right? Like I couldn't fathom or I couldn't think even in terms of years and how much determined someone can be to, to just accomplish the phase one accomplish a phase one that takes like three to five years that's pretty amazing to hear kevin thank you for sharing that that being said i have to ask the golden question of this podcast so kevin from all of those experiences that you had right starting a crew coming mount fuji your professional and personal life everything what advice would you give to your younger self Yeah, I think I'm going to end off with another analogy um, in terms of the advice. And, and maybe the, the, the analogy is actually a question, which is, can, can a chicken teach an eagle to fly? What? What? Um, so what I mean by that is that obviously a chicken is a flightless bird. Um, and if it were in a situation where it had to raise a young eagle... Um, probably before knowing it was an eagle, um, it, it would probably never uh, teach that eagle how to fly because what does a chicken need to know how to fly for? It, it doesn't. It's, a, it's a, basically a ground bird. Mm. Um, and what I mean by that is, for myself, is you know, find people that support and believe in you and your vision limit the time that you spend with those that do not understand what you're doing. Mm. And uh, they actually, in many ways, whether knowingly or unknowingly, hold you back mm. because of how they are trying to force you into their limited worldview or different worldview of whatever you're trying to achieve, mm. um, which can be incredibly draining. And so, it's with that that my advice really is to, would have been to my former self is yeah find the people that understand what you're saying that believe in what you're doing and are willing to support you and just cancel out all that noise of people who who don't get you um i i would i would just say minimize the time trying to explain it and convincing uh you you can get a lot further by finding those that support you and are willing to sponsor you in, in more way than more ways than one uh, to, and get further with that positive environment as opposed to continuing to battle in a very negative environment. Yeah, I, I think that takes us back to one of the lessons that um, I've always taken away, which is that we can't change people. We can only create an environment where they want to change. Mm. And you can spend a lot of time creating an environment but that person that you're working with or the people that are around you don't want to change or, or, or don't, don't see what you're trying to do, it's a lot easier. I mean, I don't want to say it's easier, but it's a lot more rewarding and maybe fulfilling to um, find other people. or And those people exist, Kev. I think that's something that I, I, I realized when I joined the group at first is those people exist, right? Like, I think there was parts of my life where I ran into people trying to explain things or convince them or... Uh, maybe I even did things that I didn't believe in, but just wanted to fit in, um, but didn't do those things very well. Um, the crew really gave me an opportunity to meet people and maybe hundred people that were, uh, mm. you know, made it easier for me to develop and grow. And Kevin was one of those people. <laughs> so find, find your eagles, right? If you want mm -hmm. to learn how to fly, and that, maybe that's how I'm going to sign off. Oh my god. Yeah. Don't be a chicken, maybe that's another Yeah, <laughs> yeah don't be a chicken. There you <laughs> <go>. chicken. <laughs> no, that that's great, man. Um something something that we've noted every time we talk to someone is like there's that that last question and why we love it so much is because you know, everyone's got it's there's some similar tones, but everyone's got something a little bit different, which is quite interesting. Yeah. No one has ever talked about chicken egos before. This is the first time for everything. Yeah. Okay, uh, with that, uh, thanks, thanks, Kev, for your time. Uh, do appreciate it. Mm. 
Definitely. Thank you, Kevin, so much for being here today. I definitely learned a lot, right? I like I I, I admire Paul because of his hiking before, but now I admire him more because <laughs> of the difficulty that you described. And um, to be honest, the things I love the most about the conversation today is the analogies, right? I think I'm gonna pick myself some analogies when I come to speak to other people. But um, thank you so much for being here today. Thank you for having me. Yeah. I wish you, Nick, and Paul, and the one you have nothing but the the best, and that you'll find your next Mount Fuji, and you'll all have some very interesting experiences. Yeah. Thank you so much for having me today. And we got hundreds of stories, so Kevin, you know, maybe down the line, uh, you can share some of your other favorites. Yeah. Because um, we, we never really get to talk about the mindset we had when we were younger. We get to talk a lot about the things that happened, right? So that's, that was very interesting. So yeah, let me know any anytime. I'd be happy to come on and share. Yeah, share a story or two. Cool, cool. All right, guys, that's a wrap. Peace, peace, Kev. Thank you. No problem. This podcast is a project created by her AT Pacific Coast Scout Group, where we created awesome leadership and management training program for eighteen to twenty six years old. If you want to learn more about us, check out our website and social media accounts. Link in description.